I have very high expectations of myself. And so I always feel the pressure to achieve something I'm working on. I will always walk into a situation where there is great opportunity and say, wow, you better take advantage of this and you better work your tail off to take advantage of this. And so I'm not nervous, but that doesn't mean that I'm not eager to achieve and feeling, you know, the drive in and anxiousness that comes with that. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration about how hard it is both personally and professionally to build history-making companies. Enjoy. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on this show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out. There are companies in the KP portfolio that I would have dreamed of working for as an operator. Let's see if we can't find your next great career move. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, Jubin. So glad to be doing this. It's what, six six to nine months in the making? I think at least. At least. At least it's like yes. This has been the recruiting process of my life to get this done. <laughs> We're in your beautiful home in San Diego. Thank you for having me. I get all of these things started the exact same way. I'll read your background back to you. Tell me what I do wrong. We'll go from there. Sounds great. All right. You went to University of Virginia. You actually transferred there. Fun fact. You went to Xavier first, if I'm not mistaken. Spent two years there. Then you came home, closer to home, a couple hours away from your folks. And you got your degree there. I think you got an advanced degree there too. I did. Okay. Overachiever. Then you went to Active Network. You uh, got into sales, Enterprise AE, then Enterprise Sales Manager. Then you went to Blackboard. I remember Blackboard. Strategic Account Director did that for a year. Then you went back to Active Network, Sales Manager, did that for a couple of years. Found Glassdoor in 2013. Company was doing about eight-ish million of ARR. You started as the Director of Sales pretty quickly. Your peer on the other end of things quit or was let go or whatever. All of a sudden, you're thrown into the deep end. You're basically managing 20 plus salespeople. You do a good job with that. In 2014, you become the VP of sales, owning the number at that point for three years. Then they put a senior in front of your title. You have two years as the SVP of sales. And then along the way, in 2018, it gets acquired for $1.2 billion. And you spend two years post-acquisition as the chief sales officer, ostensibly resting investing. You don't have to say that. I will. And then as of two months ago, you started as the chief revenue officer of Calendly. If only resting investing. <laughs> <laughs> if only, Jimmy. No? That's, uh, that's, it's almost correct. Yes. With the exception of the resting investing part. That were, there was quite a bit of work in those two years that followed the acquisition. All right. Should we, um, should we get a few elephants out of the room right now? Let's do it. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm, we're going to do it on air. All right. I have three. I, I let three. you into my home. Uh, I want you to remember that. Good. I have three bones to pick with you and I'll just All go right. in sequential order. Number one. When you moved to San Diego, I was very excited. And I said, Kate, you have to go to my favorite burrito <laughs> shop in San Diego. And here I was, I wasn't expecting or necessarily waiting for a call or a text telling me how good the chicken tortilla soup in California burrito was. But I thought maybe I would get one or a picture or something. Maybe you wearing a t-shirt from, you know, Jorge's. Anyway, didn't. And then we talk. And it was very meh to you. And I was really disappointed by that. And so that's bone number one. Okay. All right. That's legit. Fair. Okay. Yep. Number two, I was desperately trying to recruit you and lost to Tope and Calendly. Like I see why now as I've done my research and homework, but we got to know each other because I wanted you on the podcast what, a year ago, at least. At least. Yeah. And mm -hmm. You were like, uh, no, I don't want to yet. Da, 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 da. And then I was like, what are you doing next? And you're like, well, funny timing. I'm exploring different options. And then, my, you know, my spidey senses perked up. And uh, after a valiant, hard fought, but nonetheless fruitless effort, I failed. So that's bone number two. Okay. All is right. That, is that also fair? I think that's fair. But I wanted to also say that I very much appreciate the effort <laughs> and the attempt and the confidence that you had in my abilities. I tried. And you know what? It wasn't false confidence. As I learned more about you and as I realized that you went to Calendly, I'm like, ah, I was right. Damn it. Anyway. Okay. All right. Number three. And I've told you this story before, but I think it's worth retelling. I have a bone to pick with Glassdoor. So I have a hit list of companies okay. that all said no to me as a BDR. Right. Yelp, mm -hmm. 
Glassdoor, and there's there's a litany of them oh, that are on my no no list. Okay, Glassdoor is one of them because they said no to me as a BDR, and I'm still to this day I wear that I wear that L on my face. So, Ever since you told me, I wear it as well because clearly. <laughs> We made a massive error in judgment. Look, uh, look at you now, though. Look how it turned out, Juven. Oh it my! It turned out the way it should. Oh my goodness! All right. Of those three, do you agree with all three? Do you have any rebuttals, or can we just move on from all of them? <laughs> First, Jorge's Mexican food. I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time on that, but I appreciate the recommendation. Mm-hmm. And maybe let's just consider the scenario where it's changed since you left San Diego. Maybe I had it a couple months ago, but maybe. maybe. Or we just we agree to disagree. <laughs> Baby. All right. Check. Taupe. That's good. You got that one. Like you deserve that. Glass door. It turned out pretty good for you. Okay. Should we get back to the schedule? It turned out okay for you too. It turned out okay for me too. Should we get back to the regular schedule programming? Let's do it. Let's get back. Yes. So um, you grew up in Virginia. Both your parents were in sales, if I'm not mistaken. What was conversation like at the dinner table for Kate? I joke all the time that I was raised in a sales Petri dish because my dad was a sales leader for large insurance firms for a long time. And my mom was in sales for various telecom companies, but mostly selling into the government because we were right outside Washington, D.C. What I remember the most clearly is less the dinner conversation and more at night, particularly as I was a teenager and through high school, we would be reading, watching television, whatever at night. And my mom would be going through her voicemails. She'd be sitting on our real phone, like landline phone, going through her voicemails from the day and deleting, replying to them, like you would an email or Slack today, but doing it with her voice on the phone. And so a lot of that I was exposed to how she approached problems, her response to key issues, how she was escalating with leadership. I learned a lot about communication from my mom because I just got it through osmosis. Huh. And now it's, it's like such a funny thing to think about. You're like, voicemail. My mom and I got in a tiff the other day because she apparently said something really important to me on a voicemail. And I'm like, mom, who leaves voice? Who checks their moms. voicemail anymore? Moms. moms. Exactly, moms. <laughs> uh, and you have a brother, two brothers? One brother. Yeah. One brother. Okay. Yes. Can I tell you something funny that yeah. I dug up? Okay. Yeah. This is, from, this is from the archives. This was in 2003. Okay. Okay. Back when you were Kate Krieger? Krieger? Yes. Mm-hmm. Kate Krieger. There was an article that the UVA post or whatever, they did an interview of you. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I'm worried about where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they did an interview with you and it was like your decision to come to Virginia and why, and you were this superstar and they wanted to get to know you. And you talked about how your favorite actor was Ben Affleck and you had some favorite movies in there. It sounds like he still is, but it's done your not. <laughs> anyway, so the question was, who is your favorite opponent? And your response was, my brother. <laughs> I did play a lot of basketball against my brother. Yeah. And there was a point in time, he's just shy of four years younger than me. So I was ta- much taller than him for a long time. And then we kind of like the tables turned very quickly because he's now strapping and six, five and can dunk and everything else. But he, uh, you know, is a very good friend of mine. I treasure my relationship with my brother, but you know, growing up, we were pretty competitive and loved to play all sorts of things. And he definitely is probably the one who I wanted to beat the most, at least at the time. Now, now I just love him and hope Isn't the best for him. Is that a funny response? I don't remember. I honestly don't remember saying that, but it sounds totally on brand. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes for everyone. Don't worry. So you go to UVA, you transfer there. You were the first and maybe only, dare I say, captain to be named captain having never played a game before. Pretty cool. Got a full scholarship there. How? Like my question as I was thinking about it was like, how do you win the locker room over having never developed any street cred on the basketball court? Yeah, I actually forgot about this too. Thanks for digging this up. Yeah. When I transferred, as you, when you transfer, you have to sit out a year. And actually when I transferred, I didn't even think I was going to play basketball, which is now like, you know, remarkable to me. I spent about three weeks on campus and then I was back in the gym and and been pulled in by people I knew through coming up in high school and travel basketball, et cetera. But you can't play. You just practice. It's kind of brutal. And I don't know if the rules change now, but back then. I think they're still that way. Yeah. You just have to, you have to really think hard about whether you want to do this. And the team was in, uh, you know, just a time where I think there was a need for strong leadership and I just worked hard and I 
saw the opportunity. I never anticipated being named captain after that because I hadn't played a minute. I hadn't scored a point, you know, hadn't done anything except practice, work hard, communicate, try my best to lead. So it was a really special moment for me at the time and something I'm still very, very proud of. And such an awesome experience. Virginia gave me so much. And your parents came to pretty much every game in Virginia. Is that right? Everything that was within driving distance and a bunch that were outside driving distance. Yeah, like all your home games they would come to. Mm -hmm. Today, mom of two kids, I can see the kids... Kids, actually, I can't see the kids' toys anywhere. Where are all I the cleaned kids up? Toys? They're all they're all upstairs. <laughs> um, how old are they? I have a six and a half year old and a three year old. When you think about like Kate and you see your kids, daughters, sons. My six and a half year old is a daughter. Okay, so like she's becoming a human. She is. Lots of opinions and emotions. Uh, absolutely. You know, it turns out even when you're an adult, that doesn't actually change very <laughs> That's much. That's right. Not to dive too far into it immediately, but when you think about the qualities that you've developed, that your parents gave you, that you talked about at the dinner table, do you think about that with them? Constantly. I can't say that we've sat down and said, these are the specific values that we hope to instill in our children. But I think organically, my husband and I share a very common set of values and character traits and how we see the world. And so we definitely take moments to teach and reinforce those values and whether they want to hear them or not. And most often at this age, it seems not. Uh, But I think a lot of it, honestly, to go back to basketball comes from my experience in athletics and how that shaped my worldview and the type of people I want to raise. And uh, yeah, so I think that that's, that's a common conversation in this house. Are we at the dinner table? This is it. This is the dinner table. This is the dinner table. When you sit, and I'm sorry to pry like this, so just stop me as soon as I go too far. But when you sit at the dinner table and the kids are there, mom's been traveling, she makes a point to come home, that maybe dad's doing the same. Is there a specific conversation that you intentionally try and bring up? Like, and this is from an aspiring parent someday, maybe. If my kids were on a podcast and it was a dinner table... I just try and shape and steer the conversation to certain things. Do you think about it that way or is that like diabolically calculated? Uh, I would like to think I think about it that way, but I think the practical reality of the situation is you're reacting to what your children say and trying to coach in, in that moment. My approach to it is I want them like right now, if we think about school or the activities they're in, I want them to try really hard, you know, give a lot of effort enjoy what they're doing, learn, and just recognize that it's a journey. Like we're just trying to get better every day. We're talking to my daughter about reading right now. And she has moments where she can get frustrated that she doesn't know a word or gets stuck. And it's just, Hey, if you remember last month, you couldn't even read this whole page. And now we've made progress on the page. So just reminding her that it's all about the process. You know, that's a conversation that we have frequently and just getting a little bit better inching forward every day is the win. I think about my daughter plays soccer or my son's in soccer now or swim lessons and it's mostly at this age about just instilling that joy. I just want you to enjoy it um, and enjoy the process of learning something new. You've said if you were not a sales leader, you'd be a basketball coach. 100%. You think so? I do. Yeah. That's what I want to do with my free time when I'm not being a sales leader. Did you ever consider after Glassdoor, great run, you, you know, like you had a pretty good run. You, you could probably hang up the cleats. Did you ever think, Maybe this is my time. Maybe we move the family to Virginia and I try and gun for the head coaching job. (laughs) Uh, I am wildly unqualified for that. I didn't think about it in those terms, but I did during my time because I, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I took four months solid off before I thought about work again after Glassdoor. And I did reflect on the quality of life that I wanted to do in part. That's why we're here in San Diego. And what I was missing for a big chunk of that time at Glassdoor was this competitive outlet and the joy that I get from coaching and developing young players in basketball. So I thought hard about, you know, how do I get that back in my life? And even as I stepped into the role at Calumly, I'm still thinking about how do I make time for that at some point? Because I know it's going to be important to me and I find it very fulfilling and I haven't solved that problem yet, but I did spend time thinking about it. By the way, you were the busiest person on PTO that I've, all that doesn't have a job that I've ever, like, I would try and get a hold of you to be like, Hey, how'd this conversation go? Like, how'd this go? Tell me more. And you'd be like, Hey, can we talk in like four days at six o'clock at night? And I'm like, <laughs> what? who has the full-time job here? What is well, once you, once you and I what got engaged, I was on? full-time job searching. So oh I was, there were four months where I had very little to do. I can assure you of that. And the calendar was wide open, but once you and I really started actively talking, it was a different situation. Uh, I missed my window. Okay. So speaking of Glassdoor, you joined at 8 million and you left when it was doing more 
than 400-ish, right? Hundreds of millions, yeah. Hundreds of millions. Okay. As you're going through that, okay, so like I did some quick math and like no one's ever accused me of being a mathematician, but I did some quick math and it was basically doubling every year, like ish. It was pretty much growing 100% year over year. Is that fair? It's fair. You know, there's a slope of that curve. But yes, yeah. Ish. Uh-huh. For dramatic effect, it sounds better. As I was thinking about that, that is, I don't want to say as good as it gets because there's, I've seen Figma and others, but like it's pretty much as good as it gets. That is damn good. That type of run is incredible. And like you getting promoted and you're, I've like looked at the LinkedIn of a bunch of people that worked with you. Everyone's getting promoted. Holy crap. This business is growing so quickly that we can't even hire people fast enough. We're just going to promote people, which is a great place to be. When you're going through that ride and it was the first time you've been through, I guess, a ride like that before. Do you know, oh my God, it might not get better than this. I might never have it this good again. In the beginning, no. Because I was, you know, I will be the first to admit, totally naive, just blinders on running as fast as I could towards a goal. Very naive to what that was in the context or relative to the performance of other companies. You know, I wasn't thinking that way. Towards the end, uh, post-acquisition, when life looked very different than the early build and hyper growth stage, I was very aware that this was an amazing experience and one that I might not have again in career making highlights, all of those things. So the awareness came later on, I guess, is the summary. And um, I feel very, very fortunate and grateful to have had that experience now. When you started to feel it, did you start communicating it with the team? I'll give you an example. I remember having a conversation with the VP of sales of one of our companies, and he reminded me of this in LA a couple of weeks ago when we were having lunch. He said, it was about a quarter before everybody knew what was happening, but like we could tell oh my God, this business is turning a corner. And you can just see the pipeline, the velocity, the deals, the size of the deals, the types of customers, the inbound, the reaction, the net retention, the growth. Like You could just see all these things. And I said, dude, don't take this the wrong way, but this might be the best you ever have. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he almost took it defensively. And he was reflecting back on it. And he's like, you were so right when you said that. I realized now you didn't mean it as like a negative. You were just like, enjoy this. And that's what I meant. Like, enjoy this because this is about to be insane. This is going to be insane. And don't lose sight of how hard and rare these rides are because they're not very frequent. And people listen to things like this podcast. And I think one of the disservices that I do is have people on that have only been on these rides, right? And so what I try and do is at least spotlight those people and tell the stories of how they're not as glamorous as they always seem. But they're certainly rare. So did you start to realize that and then try and make others aware of that moment? Oh, gosh. Again, towards the end, I think that we tried to tell a story about where we had been and where, you know, the, the road ahead was still just as exciting. And I think the more translatable part of that for me today is where I'm at with Calendly, where we're just on the precipice of all of this greatness. You know, as an example, we just did a year in review where we looked back at all the team accomplished without me, by the mm-hmm. way. In the past year and the the numbers, the results, the outcomes are astounding. But I think that that perspective comes with experience and with a little bit of wisdom. And as much as you, you can stand up in front of a team and say, hey, everyone, these are the good old days. This is amazing. We're in rarefied air. Like you are on an exciting ride right now. I don't know if it sinks in until you've done it and you can look back and say, wow, that was really insane. The other thing that I'll totally. mention on that I agree. and is specific to the Glassdoor experience is it never felt easy. It felt hard the whole time to me. I mean, we were gritty and had to work our tails off to do what we did at Glassdoor because we were never a market leader. We were constantly an underdog. We had to evangelize for every inch that we got at Glassdoor. And so I don't know if that, you know, especially in the front half of my time there, I ever felt like, wow, we are just crushing it. Look at these numbers. And It doesn't feel that way. No. Within the four walls, this is what always blows my mind. Like Figma. I had Amanda from Figma on. And for what, 15 quarters, not a single rep ever missed their number because they did not have enough people to meet the demand. There was just too much inbound. It was impossible to hire that fast. And people were quitting. She had the same experience at Zendesk, which was also an insanely fast growing company and people quit. And it's like, think about that. You're having the ride of your life, but you get so caught up 
in the moment and the intricacies and how hard it actually is that you would leave. And your whole career, you wait for that ride. And then you finally get there and you walk away because it turns out it's not as glamorous as you think it is. It's actually really hard work. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. And I agree. And it's a shame, but it's also a relatable it's a relatable problem because when you're, especially when you're early in your career, you just don't have the perspective that is required to understand that. And it just feels hard. And if you're just chasing your quarterly number and there's change constantly happening to you, even in the best of circumstances where it's well communicated and uh, explained and understood, you know, it's still growing companies is very, very challenging. So a birdie told me that when you joined, you sat down with a few folks on the team and you defined the leadership framework, the growth framework for the company. And much to my surprise and delight, the acronym was GRIT. And what he said was that I doubt even Kate thought that that framework would be beloved by 500 plus people and something still alive and well today. It's a big part of her legacy. Really cool. What, what does GRIT mean? In this specific instance, yes. I like to joke that I was on I was on the grit concept before yeah. grit was cool. Right, right, right. Uh, and so I, you know, the background context is when Angela Duckworth came out with her book and did her TED talk on grit. I just it resonated so strongly with me as this personal characteristic that I, you know, mm-hmm. really came to value. Somewhat coincidentally, I also knew instinctually it was important to frame our values as a revenue organization at Glassdoor, and we were very small. We were probably mm-hmm. still sub fifty people. But I had built my core leadership team. We went off site and we worked on defining what we wanted to be known as, you know, to the company, to ourselves, to customers, et cetera. Like this is playbook stuff. And through the magic of that day and a half in Sonoma, we came out with this concept of grit and an acronym for each of the letters. And so I'll, I'll take you through them. But in brief, G is growth, growth mindset, always be learning. You know, some of the things we talked about specific to my kids, I try to instill the same concept of like, you're never, you're never there. The R is results because we are <laughs> we are playing a revenue game and we have to be accountable and I want to be known as a team that delivers. I is integrity, which I always say, hopefully I don't have to explain to anyone, but it, for me, that means doing the right thing even when no one's looking. The most important one that stands out to me as unique in relative to other sales org, I believe, is this concept of team that we really embodied. Being collaborative, helping each other. We really tried to root out any kind of the lone wolf scenarios in our organization. We wanted all boats to rise with a high tide. And so when you're bringing on all these new people, like, you know, 50, 100 people a year, it's so important that they can count on their teammates and that there's the strength of the team to grow, um, to grow the business. So GRIT is grit it. and we rolled it out and it's stuck. It's stuck hard at Glassdoor. It was- it, not only has it stuck, not only is it still there, but the leaders that worked for you have now used this acronym. Oh, that's cool. That's what a legacy is all very, about. Very, so very cool. When you're the leader, and you're sitting down and defining the collective's value prop or code of conduct or whatever you want to call it. Do you come in with, hey, here are my values. Here's what I stand for. Because like, I think it's hard to then have something that isn't a really core principle of yours be reflected in the team's values. Does that make sense? How does that bartering process happen and, and maybe it's not a process, but is it really a consensus driven approach here? Or are we coming in the table with, all right, this is what I think we should do. This is what I stand for. Do you guys also stand for this? I hope you do because that's what I was interviewing for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I think about the process to determine our set of values for sales at Glassdoor, it was a consensus driven process. We did sit in a room, we debated, we talked. I would say I had a perspective and I was facilitating. So yes, there is probably a bias. But ultimately, I think the leaders that were in that room walked out and said, I believe in this. This is something I can stand up and live the values and go to my teams and and preach this. To give you this scenario, Calendly, I just rolled out grit at Calendly. And and when I sat with my leadership team, the first time I ever met them back in December, I talked them through it at a very high level. And they said, you know what? That's great. Let's do it. We, We need something like this. So it's a little bit different and maybe I'm relying on something that worked before and we'll see how that works out. But in the first instance, it was... It was really driven by the group. When you're doubling every year, how do you scale ahead of the business? What do you think about? How do you get resources around you? How do you have people in your corner that are looking out for you? How do you deal with being like, okay, I've never seen this revenue scale before. Like, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) 
again, there's, I think I have more intentionality about it now than I did in the first ride at Glassdoor. In the first ride, I was very fortunate to be paired by, uh, paired with a few senior people who helped me to see around the corners or helped connect me to people who could help me scale and see around the corners that, and <laughs> believe me, we didn't see all of them because, uh, you know, things are going to happen. Now, what I think about is I have seen this scale. It is a very similar ride. And it's not that I will have all of the answers, but I know where to look and I have a bigger network of people to go ask now. So I'm at a, you know, I just have such an outsized advantage versus where I was at Glassdoor when I was operating on instinct, but also relying on the good judgment and, and tenure of others around Glassdoor. I love that. Operating on instinct. How do you trust your instinct? I've learned to trust it mostly through reinforcement and feedback from my managers, peers, et cetera. You know, I, I think everybody has a gut instinct and you build more intuition for whatever business you're in over time. But ultimately, it just continuously got reinforced, you know, in the scenario of Glassdoor. Hey, I think we should do this. And then I'd get some feedback. I'd go um, talk to our CEO or our senior team. And like most of the time, you're like, yeah, hey, I think we're onto something and let's go try it. Mm-hmm. You learn, you fail, you learn, you iterate, all of those things. But I think one of the things that has changed for me over time is the strength and this, the loudness of the instinct inside me and, and my conviction to listen to it. Can I read you a quote? You were reflecting back on Glassdoor. And what you said was what really stands out to me and makes me proud is when I see teams buckling down and working together during moments of adversity. At a hyper growth stage company, any number of obstacles can pop up at any moment. Systems can break down. The market can shift and new competitors can pop up overnight. If the team can come together to work through these challenges, that's how great companies and leaders are made. This really stuck with me. I think it's really relevant to what we're talking about right now. What are the moments when people are quitting Glassdoor, when the people are going to quit Calendly, when they're having the ride of their life, but something happens? Are there any moments that stand out to you? Yeah, we had a handful of them. And I won't get into the specifics of each one, but what I can tell you in each instance is there was a lot of intensity around, uh, you know, a change that was made. Perhaps we made a mistake that we had to correct. You know, things went off the rails and needed to be pulled back. And when I think about those moments and think about what I would have done differently and what we did well in those moments, what emerges to me is the strength of the team that I had around me, the strengths of the leaders that worked in the team that we built and you could go to the team and you had trust. You had this, this trust capital with the team where we came, we were honest about the situation. We had a plan to either fix, change, correct what had happened. And over time, the team saw us execute and deliver on the change that we promised. And that is, I, I think, if, honestly, if you talk to most of the, the team at Glassdoor that we built, they'd tell you that, hey, XYZ went wrong, but they always fixed it. They always came back. And uh, so our we had credibility with the team on that front, not because we always got things right, but because we did come and we were honest about what we were going to do about it. Okay. Well, I'll pick one off for you if you're not going to give me the softball here and feel free to take it or not. But the business rapidly changed during the pandemic. It was very, very affected. And a story that I heard that I didn't know about was that you went from, and again, I might be recruiting this, but you went from competing with a company called Indeed And I assume this was like the people on your dartboard that you're throwing darts at, like this is the rallying cry to now you're both owned by the same company and you built an overlay model in that construct. Okay. So when I went to Palo Alto Networks, there was a company that my startup was bitterly competitive with, like the ones where you lose deals. And you're just like, oh, the ones where they're always recruiting from you and we're always recruiting from them. And lo and behold, we go to Palo Alto Networks and four months later, who do we buy? This team. And next thing I know, I'm inheriting like the reps and like we're talking about the deals that we were competitive in. And I'm like, boy, this is awkward. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was like this, this sniff test where you never thought highly of them. But now you kind of work together and for no good reason. I didn't think highly of them, just that they were the other, you know, and that was like, this is the team on the court that I was playing. I wanted to absolutely smash them. And I was licking my wounds from some of the times where they smashed me. Anyway, I remember there being a little bit of awkwardness. What was, how was it for you? 
We were so we were acquired in 2018 by Recruit Holdings, and Recruit Holdings owns both now Indeed and Glassdoor. And so when when that happened, there was a sense of you know what I said to the team very often is uh, we're now frenemies because for a while we did operate as independent companies and and we continued under the banner of Recruit to do our thing and and actively compete quite honestly. And so I'd always joke if if someone came back and said, oh, you know, this portion of the deal is going to Indeed and we got this portion and we're still fighting for these pieces of the pie, I would just be like, well, our frenemy, our frenemies are here again. Because we would, uh, and it increased over time, we were increasingly strategic with one another in terms of um, sharing best practices, sharing operational capabilities, et cetera. So it was a little bit like being warmed up in a bathtub. You know, it wasn't overnight cut over. There was a point in 2020, based on what was happening in the world, where we decided to pull forward a strategy that we had discussed for a while is this overlay model and how can we how can we leverage the best of both worlds and go to the market and, and really help our customers in an overlay. And that was probably the moment that was like, okay, now we're actually joining forces and this is a different mentality. But we had been warm to the idea for a couple of years before of it, before that. So that helped. So there was a Glassdoor Rec Basketball League. <laughs> you really, you really, you really dug this up. And um, I don't think they would let you play because you're just an absolute dominant force. You probably couldn't get in the paint with everybody. But nonetheless, the way the story was related to me was even though she was a big VP at the time, she'd come out and root us on. And um, by the way, this story was from the same person that referred me into Glassdoor as an EDR at the company like a long time ago. And uh, I reached back out to him and uh, he said that meant a lot. Like that was big time of you to just like come out and root the team on. Well, you, as, as, we've, as we've discussed, there's a lot of synergies between my love for basketball and it all came together. It, this was a special moment where the team was very small. We were all in the same office. We spent, you know, a lot of time together. And when they mentioned that they had pulled together... Uh, a rec league basketball game. How could I miss it? Did they not try and get you on the team? I actually think that I missed the point I had just joined when registration was happening. <laughs> I would have figured out a way to get you a slot, I but don't know. That's, I was, that's okay. <laughs> long ago in a faraway place, I may have been useful. Well, I had a little bit of inside knowledge into your process. And when you were interviewing for different roles, by the time we had started in earnest having conversations, you were like, hey, here's the deal. Like Calendly is, I'm not just saying this to butter them up or you, but like Calendly is my 1A. Like we're going to be talking and, you know, I don't get to go look for jobs very often. So I think it's in my best interest to evaluate a bunch of options, but I want you to know that I'm pretty deep in this evaluation process and I'm extremely excited about this company. And there's a chance that I don't get this job. I have to do a big presentation. Like, I think that's the point in the process that you're in. And two things struck me. Well, the, the primary thing that struck me was the Calendly model is nothing you've seen before. Maybe I'm wrong, but like it is basically freemium, completely bottoms up. And like maybe Glassdoor was like that ish, but like it wasn't Figma. Like if I was a executive recruiter talking to you about jobs, I'm probably not thinking about Calendly as a great fit for you. Is that a fair way of putting it? I can understand how you arrived at that. Yeah. What you may not know is Glassdoor did have a self-serve portion of the business. Yeah. We did it backwards. We added sales and then added self-serve and tried to build in sales assist. But I did have exposure to, um, you know, it wasn't quite PLG. But, but it wasn't a PLG point. company. 100% no. Okay. So I want to know about the interview process. How did it go? How much did they press you on the X's and O's of building a bottoms up sales motion versus understanding the acronyms and letters that compose grit. Right. You, know, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, like I do. Your yeah. leadership format rather mm-hmm. than the, the tactical stuff. It was a thorough, I would say it was a thorough process. I did have the strong advantage of having a good friend on the inside. Mm-hmm. So uh, Annie Pearl is the chief product officer at Calendly. She was chief product officer at Glassdoor. So I think personally, I benefited from a lot of leverage because Annie mm-hmm. had worked with me and was able to um, hopefully accurately describe what I brought to the table. I had a number of conversations, you know, spent hours with the leadership team, talked to a couple board members, but ultimately it culminated in putting together a strategic plan. So I had to come with not a lot of context, by the way, this is like probably mm-hmm. less than 10 hours of context on the business, uh, put together an annual plan, including revenue projections, et cetera. And what is the strategy to go achieve the goals that they have set out? 
spent a lot of time doing that, did a lot of research, talked to a bunch of people in my network to prepare for that. And ultimately it was a successful conversation. And the reason I know it's successful is I've repurposed much of that plan for our plan this year. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of hard work, a lot of networking discussion, lots of research, and then again, benefiting from having Annie on the inside. Well, do you worry about like context matters with the plan? It's hard to be like, all right, here was my playbook here and I'm going to use this playbook here. Do you worry about almost giving too thorough of detail without truly understanding the nuances of the business that you're stepping into, which is why and I've asked like a lot of leaders this question. Usually their first 30 to 60 days is a listening tour just to understand context. How do you balance playbook versus context type thing? I'm feeling my way forward on it. Uh, what I'm finding actually is the similarities in the business and the stage that we're at in Calumly is so similar to where we began in, at Glassdoor that a lot of the problems, opportunities, challenges that we face there and what we did to address them do fit at Calumly. There's a lot of similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. So I'm spending a lot of time understanding those differences and listening, but to the extent that I can move and have a bias for action and actually add some value, I'm not going slow on that front. And hopefully, you know, my team is strong and provides feedback and, you know, I'm looking to them to tell me when to pump the brakes. Can you take like, I mean, it's the easiest sales pitch in the world, but can you take like 20 seconds to tell me like, what, what does Calendly do? Yeah. Calendly solves a problem that nearly everyone in the world has, which is, is a pain in the neck to schedule meetings. And so Calendly is a scheduling automation platform that makes it super easy for you to schedule external meetings at your company. So you and I scheduled this using Calendly and what I've uncovered and what was surprising to me, uh, you know, stepping back to my process of choosing Calendly is you most likely, if you're listening to this podcast, know Calendly as the link and someone sent you a link and you've instantly booked a meeting and hopefully you've had the reaction where it's like, oh, well, that was easy. But actually it's far more complex than that when you apply it in an enterprise setting. You can do one-to-one bookings, you can do one-to-many bookings. There are a number of different event types. So if you take a, like a sales example, of course, the salesperson is going to book a one-to-one meeting. We can also plug into your funnel and allow your customers to book instantly as a part of your web form. We can do onboarding. So you can have 250 people needing to get into an onboarding program and round robin that availability with 10 of your onboarding trainers. You know, like the use cases get increasingly complex. And it's really hard to do that at scale in a secure and compliant way, which is what Calendly is now doing in the enterprise. The origin story of this company is incredible. I went down the Kate rabbit hole, then I went down the Calendly rabbit hole, then I went down the Tope rabbit hole, and I was like, whoa, I never stood a chance. I say me as if I'm the CEO of some company that I'm recruiting you for, but nonetheless, he is impressive. And he came from selling security solutions door to door, like ADP basically. And then he was, I think in sales at IBM, and he had a CS degree and he had done a couple businesses, very like different, unique, eclectic types of businesses. And he was having trouble scheduling meetings, which is how Calendly started. And um, he had built Calendly, I think like originally in Ukraine or in Eastern Europe, he had partnered with someone to build it there. And he had just enough money to build the scheduling part but he ran out of money to build the monetization component of Calendly. And so it has been, I think it still is basically free to get up and running. And the reason it started that way was because he ran out of money to put the monetization component in the platform. I, I like for the billing. Can you believe that? I mean, you, you knew this story, but isn't that un, so it became hundred percent free. Yeah, isn't it? What is the the quote about, you know, invention is the product of necessity or something like that? Unbelievable. Uh So like this business gets even crazier. In 2014, Tope raised, which was a year after he founded it, 550K, lives in Atlanta, raised it from an Atlanta-based firm, I'm pretty sure, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then no money raised until 2021, like shortly before you joined. Then he raised 350 million from Iconic and OpenView at a three-ish billion dollar valuation. Like, you don't see that. By the time he raised, and this is all public, like I didn't go into the archives for this, but by the time he raised in 2020, Calendly had posted a nearly $70 million ARR number, which is over double digits from the year prior. Just for the audience listening, Calendly hit the $100 million ARR mark 
four years faster than DocuSign. When I heard you were going to Calendly, I was so bitter. Calendly, <laughs> is this even a real, like, I had no idea how many people use this business. Crazy origin story, no? What an incredible story. Taupe's story alone is an incredible story. And then you build in the, the success that Calendly has experienced. And it is rare, uh, the success that he's experienced and the company has experienced, but very non-traditional path thus far. You know, didn't take basically any funding until 70 million in ARR. You know, you don't see that very often. No. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. It's an incredible story. There's such strong trajectory for this business and we're literally just getting started. What was the hardest question that he asked you in the interview? Maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was someone else. Hmm. It was, it was less about the questions. I will say what was challenging is he said, he said, as part of the strategic plan exercise, it was a very high bar and I'm not going to get into specifics, but we're talking like multiples of growth that would be uh, very challenging for any CRO and any leader. And he said, build me a plan to go achieve this. And so that was probably the toughest part is like, how do I put that into realistic terms? And and do I come back and say, look, I don't think this is possible or a good idea because of X, Y, Z. And that's ultimately the conversation that we ended up having is like, all right, we can go, we can set the bar that high. And here's what it would take to go achieve that level of success and growth. But here are the risks and opportunities that I see with that plan. And, you know, perhaps there's another there's a number, another way to get to where you want to be. What were you trying to dig at the most? Like when you're going through this process, everyone's courting you. What were the key things that you were really trying to figure out? Well, Calendly is and was still in this interesting moment where you're pivoting and adding sales. So, you know, rocketed to success, hugely profitable relative to other companies at this stage, but we're adding sales now. And so we're at this inflection point where we're going to start adding real live sales bodies. And how is that going to be ingested into the organization? What's the cultural reaction to that going to be? Do we have real North stars in terms of our goals and objectives that say, you know, we're ready for sales and the company is going to be behind this initiative? So that's what I was interested in. Like, is this this going to be a situation where we are really behind the idea of and ready for adding sales? Yeah. Or is this the canonical product-led founder that views sales as an afterthought and products should sell themselves type thing. Right. And in this situation, I have the strong advantage that Tope was a sales person totally. himself. So he gets sales. He understands the psyche of the sales team and is very, very supportive of the sales team. So I, I vetted that out very early on because I think other scenarios and other PLG companies, I wouldn't have been as fortunate. When you do a ride like you did, eight to hundreds of ARR. Mm-hmm. Like I've had some guests on the show that have done this ride. Chris Merritt from Cloudflare started at like 3 million. Chris Degnan from Snowflake started before they had a website, blah, blah, blah. And those are my favorite stories to tell or to listen to, I suppose. When you do the next one, you kind of get your pick of the litter because you've seen all types of scale. You could go to 2 million. That's going to raise your series A. You could go to 150 million. Let's for clean numbers say you pick like 75 million of of ARR-ish when you came into the business. How did you pick that point in a business? Why didn't you go back and say like, all right, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to go take another swing at Glassdoor and and the type of company that it was in that infancy of, of, of its life cycle. When I set out to think about my next opportunity during the time off that I had, I actually landed in the place that you mentioned where I do want to go do that build again. I do want to start relatively small. Let's say series B, although, you know, all those milestones have become cloudy because when I reflected on my time at Glassdoor, I really took an honest assessment of where I had the most fun and where I had the most fun was in the build stage where, you know, day to day I was flexing between building PowerPoint decks, doing a board call, jumping on with customers, building our forecasting sheets from scratch in Google docs, you know, just being able to flex up and flex down all day. That's, you know, where I found the most enjoyment and the most satisfaction as I, you know, again, looked back. The unique thing about Calendly is it actually is a larger company, but the sales led piece is still nascent. So I'm getting the benefit and Calendly is an extraordinary opportunity because of this. I'm getting the benefit of a larger company that has experienced some success, but still doing the build work in terms of sales led. That makes sense. 
Are you nervous stepping into this? Like the order of events that my crazy brain was going and was like, all right, fine. So she picked this thing. The problem with this thing, besides valuation, and well, I guess it's a function of valuation, which is that expectations are really high. And valuation is just a reflection of ultimately what the expectations will be for growth. And so when you get to this point where this business is like ripping and then you step in, I don't know, like I'd be nervous. I'd be really nervous just because it's like, let's assume that the plan that Tope picked for you is the super, super aggressive one. <laughs> the, the problem with the super, super aggressive plan is that there is also big risks that come with that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a coward. I have very high expectations of myself. And so I always feel the pressure to achieve something I'm working on. I will always walk into a situation where there is great opportunity and say, wow, you better take advantage of this and you better work your tail off to take advantage of this. So I feel that way about Calendly for sure. I do have the, the confidence that comes with experience and the experience that I had at Glassdoor and so I'm not nervous, but that doesn't mean that I'm not eager to achieve and feeling, you know, the drive in and anxiousness that comes with that. What do you mean you're working on it? You feel like you put too much pressure on yourself? You feel like you're too outcome oriented? I think there are scenarios in life where it's important to have high expectations for yourself, but I also need to recognize there are scenarios in life where that doesn't matter as much. Calumly is certainly one where it matters. Yeah. Uh, but there are other situations in my life where like, maybe it's okay to just like have a good time, right? You know, I think the alternate universe where you're a basketball coach for a career might want to be a politician or something. But anyway, nonetheless, um, there there was a time (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, The other thing that I thought was cool, and I don't know if this was by design or not, but it passes the like grandma test of, hey, what do you do? And you can explain it to your grandma and she knows exactly what that means. I've never had a job that passes the grandma test. I should say a company, but you have actually almost the entire way through. Is that by design or? It's not, it wasn't intentional, but I, I did as, as people were asking me, why did I pick Calendly? One of the things that kind of rose to the top is it just, it's so simple to understand. And everyone, again, it's just this universal problem. No one wants to go back and forth and schedule a meeting over seven emails, which is what our data show. So it's very easy to understand the power of automated scheduling and it's easy and dare I say a little bit joyful when you experience it the first time, but it hasn't been intentional. I do think, I think it's a, it's a nice thing to have to be able to explain what you do to the people in your life. Well, it's also a pretty nice luxury to be able to say like, yeah, Jubin, like we scheduled this meeting that we're sitting down for right now through Calendly. Yes. Yeah, it worked on me. Sorry. Did you say that again? The data shows that on average, it takes seven emails to schedule a meeting. That's what our data show. Yep. Oh, that's terrifying. If you think about the scenario, because this is most of your listeners, I know I've lived this and you as a salesperson have lived this. You're getting to the demo stage. You have to book you, your manager, your SE, five people at the client. That is a nightmare scenario for scheduling for a salesperson. That's at least going to take five to eight emails to get that done. And Calendly takes a big part of that. Uh, off the plate for a salesperson, which is just, again, like I've lived it. I've lived the problem and I'm, uh, you know, very passionate about the solution. Super cool. You're two months in. You're balancing quite a few responsibilities right now. When you like go to bed at night, what makes you anxious that you aren't spending enough time on? Like, is there parts of the business that you just are like, ah, I need to give that part more love? Does that make sense? Yeah, all the time. And it's different all the time. It, it could, uh, you know, every night is different. I do lay there most nights. Some nights it's, <laughs> hey, there is this particular portion of the business that I feel like needs more love and attention, direction. Other times it's, hey, I just haven't talked to this person on my team for whatever reason a little bit and I'm feeling disconnected from them. It could also be I'm worried about my children, you know, for whatever happened today. My daughter came home upset or, you know, excited either way. Let's let's think through that. So it varies, but I do spend a fair amount of time staring at the ceiling before I go to bed. Okay. So you're not going to give me a specific child in your business life that you need to go pay more attention to. I'm two months in. You know, if what I told you today will change tomorrow, I'm sure. I think this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen, but there's a Twitter feud right now that I just had to address because it literally started two days ago, maybe a day ago that I think is one of the craziest things I've ever seen that makes me sad to live in the world that we do. And somebody wrote a manifesto 
I can't believe someone wakes up and is like, this is what I'm going to spend my time on today. Saying that Calendly etiquette is the most raw, naked display of social capital dynamics in business. The point that he was making was that it's a get in line move. Like, hey, I'm too busy. And I was like, wait a second. Am I living in the upside down right now? Isn't that the inverse of what we're talking about? Like, isn't that the actual most selfless thing to just be like, hey, here is literally every slot of availability that I have. You choose. But what am I missing here? Can you just explain this to me? Because I was trying to understand this and I didn't get it. Yeah, there's um, I don't know if it was in response to or prior to, but Mark Andreessen put out an amazing, amazing tweet. And anytime Andreessen is tweeting about your company and with positive sentiment, you're grateful. But this amazing tweet that went something like, uh, if you ignore my Calendly link, you will you know, forever be barred from getting venture capital in Silicon Valley, <laughs> which is obviously, you know, my impression of that is said in jest. And again, it's a good, it's a good moment for us when Andreessen is, is tweeting. I would argue that the vast majority of the time, sending your Calendly link to someone else creates a moment of happiness because you don't have to go back and forth. And I think so much of it is how you couch the request. And so, you know, our best practice around this is, hey, if you want, you can use my Calendly to book or I can send you some times, whatever works. Or if it's more convenient for you, please use my Calendly to find some time that works. You know, like it's all in the, it's all in the delivery on this stuff, but I'm kind of in the boat that, you know, this fodder is, is uh, interesting, but it's crazy. It's the, the responses and the memes are pretty fun to watch. All right. I want to end with actually a quote. The quote goes, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. I thought that was really cool. Can you explain that? I stole it from someone, so it's not mine. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it goes to the idea of team and be, you being successful alone will do nothing for the success of Calendly or very little for the success of Calendly is what I would go to the team and say. And so if you've got fire, if you've got energy, if you've got light and, and goodness to share, why not give it to other people? You're not going to be any dimmer because you went and helped somebody else. And I subscribe to that 100%. I think that the context of it may have originally come out of like a women's conference kind of thing where it's like, hey, women, we have to hold each other up and we have to promote each other's success. But I think it's applicable for basically any team-based environment where particularly in sales, it can be easy to be selfish and to put yourself ahead of the interests of the team. And, you know, I, I again, am a, a huge proponent of, of lighting other people up with your flame. Well, I can't wait to see what you do. And I mean that genuinely. Um, I'm excited to, uh, to be a sad bystander watching you absolutely crush it. Uh, I have no doubt you will. I wrap all these things the same way. The first is, what does the word grit mean to you? For me, it is focus and hustle over time. Are you hiring? I am absolutely hiring. Thank what, you so much what, for asking. What? What aren't you hiring for? Is there a single role that this company is not hiring for? There are probably roles that have not been created yet, but we are hiring, particularly on our go-to-market, for all customer-facing roles of various levels of seniority. So if you... Um, Any key roles? Anything that like stands out to you that is like, I got to get this job hired? In particular, I'm building out a revenue strategy team. So I would love if you have operational management consulting background um, and are a good fit, particularly if you come from a PLG company, that would be amazing. Mm. And then we're always looking for senior level AEs and account executives. So if you have large account selling experience, come be a part of the calendar ride. What's the best way to get a hold of you? LinkedIn. You can find me at Kate Allering on LinkedIn. Kate, thank you. Thanks, Jim. It was great. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.